Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their strategies and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. This week's episode is a story about two co-founders who struggled for three years to get their first paying customer. And to make ends meet during that time, one of the co-founders even had to sell his car to be able to put food on the table. These guys spent three years building a B2C business-to-consumer product, and they had almost 300,000 users. The problem was that they had zero revenue, but they kept telling themselves that they just had to keep going. Then one day, they received a call from someone at Lufthansa, the largest airline in Germany. The company had a number of their employees using this B2C product to track soccer game scores, and they wanted to know if the app could also be used to display business data in a dashboard. And that was the day that the co-founders pivoted to a B2B business. They built what Lufthansa wanted and then went out to find their next corporate customer and then the next one. It wasn't easy. It involved a lot of cold calling in the early days, which both the co-founders hated. But slowly, they started to get traction. And it was really slow growth. After 10 years of being in business, the company had about 14 employees. But finally, their persistence paid off, and they started to see the elusive hockey stick growth after year 10. The company now has over 90 employees and does over $8 million in annual run rate. It's a great story, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Clipfolio, a SaaS application for building and sharing real-time business dashboards on web browsers, mobile devices, and TVs. It helps you stay in control of your business by giving you visibility into your most important data and metrics wherever you are. Clipfolio is based in Ottawa, Canada, and was founded in 2001. To date, the company has raised over $16 million, and it has over 8,500 customers, including companies such as Jet.com, Zendesk, and IKEA, to name a few. So today, I'd like to welcome Alan Villay. Alan, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thanks, Omar. Now, I always like to start by asking my guests, getting inside your head a little bit and, and you know, figuring out what makes them tick. So what is it for you? What gets you out of bed every day to, to work on your business? Um, I think there's a lot of things. And, and probably most importantly, it's, it's the people that uh, I work with. Um, you know, fundamentally, I've always been been a huge fan of, of hiring the right people and, and really surrounding myself with uh, amazing people. Um, so and that's something that I, I've really taken to heart. Uh, we've, we've done that actually quite successfully. So working with a team that is inspiring and is really here to, to solve problems uh, and, and solve problems for customers is probably the, the biggest thing that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I also love and I remember uh, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs probably have this experience uh, but I remember the very, very first time that a customer actually paid us, like real money paid us for <laughs> our software, for our service. And it was just such an, an insanely humbling experience. It was such a high. It was almost unbelievable that somebody was going to part with their money and, 
and, and buy what we had created. Um, and, I, and I don't think I'm alone in that, but I think that's another huge thing that drives a lot of entrepreneurs is this idea that they are truly helping and, and, and building value. Um, you know, and I, I think you ask most folks and, and that's why they're in it. That's why they're in it for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard a number of people say that, and, and and many of those people have got to a point where, you know, like like your business, they're they're running very successful businesses, um, but they still look back and and they remember that first customer or oh, yeah. the first time yeah, it happened, yeah. and and it's almost like that 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 first ten dollars or fifty dollars or whatever it was seems more valuable. <laughs> Than a lot of what's <laughs> it happening really, after. It really, it really does, right? Um, because you were you were intimately involved at that time. You know, like uh, you know, the first thousand customers that that we brought on. I think I was intimately involved with almost every single one of those. Um, and there's real, there's there's huge value in that, of course, right? And 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 I try to stay as close as possible to to all customers, and especially the early ones. Um, but you're right, that first customer or the first dozen customers, uh, they're really, really special. And they really, they really shape uh, how an entrepreneur uh, approaches, you know, what they're doing and, and how they get up in the morning, right? Yeah. Now, I gave the audience an overview of Clipfolio. But in your own words, can you help the audience understand a little bit more about who are your target customers and what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Sure, sure. And, and I mean, the business has changed uh, quite dramatically over the past uh, 15 years, uh, and I'm sure we can get into that. Uh, today, we're uh, really lucky in that we work with um, a lot, multiple thousands of small and mid-sized businesses. So I know that you mentioned uh, some of the bigger names, Jet and Ikea and, and, and you know uh, whoever else uh, there was. And we, we deal with big companies as well, but the, the bulk of our customers are small and mid-sized companies. And you know the, the the owners or the founders or the the managers they'll they'll come to us and they'll say I, I know I need to be monitoring the health of my business I, I know that these things you know should be things that are on my radar on a daily basis um, but first of all I don't I don't know what I should be monitoring right so we can help them uh, and guide them uh, and a lot of what we do is you know with our content and with our sales processes is coach them into what metrics and what what dashboards they should be looking at in the first place. Um, and then secondly, you know, is this a good number or is this a bad number? So um, when these customers first come to us uh, and we've talked to them about this, they'll often say, uh, I don't feel that I'm in control of, of what my business is doing. Or I have so many data sources or so many apps that are that are providing data. Again, I don't feel like I, I, I am in control. And that's, a, that's an interesting word because I think that's something that, you know, every entrepreneur needs to feel like they are in charge and are on top of what the business is telling them. So, so I think in that regard, uh, I mean, there's a real connection between uh, what we're doing and and uh, how we can help our uh, customers uh, build better, more successful, stronger, uh, more competitively sustainable businesses. Um, so, I mean, that in a nutshell is is what we're doing. We're helping them bring all the various metrics, all the things that matter, uh, and put them in a real time dashboard so that they know. Uh, and can make better decisions um, throughout the day. The business was founded in 2001. And 16 years is a long time for any SaaS business. I'm not even sure there are that many out there. I know, I know, I know. 
can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, it's your your co-founder is peter right yeah that's right that's so, right and uh we actually went to school together so i've known him for a long time uh this is actually my second company i, I started another company in in 96 uh and uh i mean just a quick sidebar with that company in 96 you know straight out of university um and for those of you old enough uh money was being thrown around like crazy uh and we we raised 45 million dollars um within a matter of about three years in 96. And I exited that company, the company did an IPO, and I mean, nobody really got terribly rich. Um, but when I started this company in 2001, um, you know, my only real experience was that I was gonna go out to market and raise funds. Um, you know, and this is 2001, 2002. Um, you know, and, and, and we had a product idea, but, but there was really no evidence. And I think, uh, I, I think that was probably one of the, the earliest, um, uh, misconceptions or mistakes that, that I made. And, and what's, what's maybe the lesson in this is that I still see that behavior today. There's a, there's definitely a glorification of, uh, companies that go out and, and raise money and, and raise money often far too soon, um, you know, really, that it's a it's a it's a case of you know the cart before the horse um, syndrome, and and we were doing exactly the same thing. We went out to market, and first of all, in two thousand and two, two thousand and one, uh, there was no VC or angel uh, in their right mind that was going to invest in a pre-revenue startup, um, and that was probably one of the best things that uh, ever happened to us because it really sort of level set our expectations about what it meant to be starting a business, what it meant to be an entrepreneur. And I mean, I always caution folks that, you know, being an entrepreneur is both the best thing and the worst thing in the world. And you had better have um, an expectation to be self-sufficient, cash self-sufficient for two years, because it's going to be hard. And I remember the early days, I mean, Peter, my co-founder, sold his car uh, so that we could put some food on the table. Um, wow. You know, and we weren't married. We didn't have a house. We didn't have kids at the time. Uh, none of that kind of stuff. So... You know, those things are, 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 you know, it's easier if you don't have uh, those obligations. But still, I mean, there's there's a lot of hard perseverance and, and, and really painful, um, difficult uncertainty in the, in the early years. Now, what was interesting, uh, when we first started the company, it actually wasn't a, a B2B play. It was a B2C play where we had a dashboard. We, we've always been a dashboard vendor, a real-time dashboard vendor, but the premise was, um, we have a dashboard that you download to your desktop. Uh, it was an on-prem tool, and you monitor your soccer scores, your weather, your sports news, your your uh, your stock prices, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was actually wildly popular. We had thousands of downloads every day, and we could not find a business buyer. Um, you know, and it was it was really really difficult to. to to see on the one hand this success, but on the other hand, you know, this, this inability to, uh, to get money coming in. So, um, you know, that was very difficult and, and it wasn't until one of our early customers, Lufthansa came along and said, well, would you consider pushing business data to the desk, uh, dashboard instead of, you know, soccer scores? Um, and that was really our first customer and, and we listened and we made a, an overnight decision that we were, 
going to move into the business dashboard space. And, and of course, at that time, it's, it's not hard to do because you're, you're, you're starving. Uh, there's really no uh, viable business model um, that is making sense. So if a customer comes along and um, you know, presents a, an opportunity, I think it's, it's a very clear indication that you, you jump on it and, and you listen to that customer and, and you, you pivot the business uh, very quickly. Uh, and that's and that's that's a clear indication, right? Uh, but I'll tell you the flip side. Um, as we were then moving into the business space, and we we sold into customers such as Intel and EMC, we had this downloadable desktop uh, dashboard that was very expensive, and and it was being sold into IT, and it, the sales cycle was very long, and we started making revenue. But we never really experienced a tremendous amount of growth. Um, and, and here's one of the places where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck. Uh, as I said, if you're, if you're not making any money whatsoever and, and there's a clear indication that things are not working, it's very easy to say, okay, let's move on. Let's, let's discard this business model or discard this product and move on. On the flip side, if things are growing like crazy and you're 2xing or 3xing your revenue, uh, again, it's, it's clear to say that, hey, we've got something that's working. But a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in that middle ground where they have fits and spurts of, of successes, uh, little successes that drive hope and drive these false positives of a business model or a product that actually has fit. And we were in that same boat for actually a very long time. And you say things to yourself. You say things, well, let's stay the course because look at last month we sold this big deal. Um, and you say, let's stick to our guns. But the reality is, is that, that the product is not working. It's not working to the expectations that you, that you should, be, uh, should be growing at. So I, I think this is, this is definitely one of the lessons that um, – that you know, I would put out there: be be as brutally honest um, as you can with your success and your growth rate. And if you're stuck in that uh, mediocrity, in that sort of middle ground, where it's not a, a horrible disaster and it's not a wonderful success, you really have to ask yourself: Is this as good as, as good as, as it's going to get, or should we try something different? Um, and in our case, we spent too long doing the same thing. And we should have said, listen, this is not working. Let's retool. Let's go back to the drawing board and try something different. Um, so certainly, you know, in the early years, we, uh, we definitely struggled with that. Um, you know, we struggled with the fact that we were not funded, uh, and that was probably a good thing. And we also, of course, struggled with the fact that we had this very slow growth that, uh, that we should have probably killed um, much, much earlier than we did. So the, the funding is is a great point. And so I, I, why do you say that you see too many startups that sort of are going out and, and trying to get funding before they really have, have traction? What are, what are, from your perspective, what are some of the downsides of raising money too early? Um, the, the downsides are that um, you, you don't have any leverage. Um, you know, if you if you go out and raise raise money, or if, even if you if, if you start working with an incubator, I think that's that's often one of the first places uh, that that put companies on the wrong on the wrong path. Um, now, there's there's incubators that are really really tremendous at what they do, and I always um, caution people 
if you're if you're getting involved with an equity based incubator, uh, I would definitely say think twice about it. Um, you really have to believe in the value that they're going to give you uh, for that equity. Uh, but there are also tons of non-equity based incubators, uh, accelerators, and those are the ones that I'm, I'm a big fan of. So they're they're more of a they're more of a uh, a place where you can bounce ideas, you can work with a, a like-minded group of folks, um, you know, and you're not giving up equity in the early days. I mean, these days there's so much, I mean, even you, your podcast, there's so much information online, there's so many entrepreneurs that are willing to help, you can get advice. And it used to be that that was the big thing that an incubator would would offer. But I think that that, that that model has changed somewhat. So I would be cautious about incubators and, and definitely cautious about bringing equity on too early. I think the, the very, very first thing that a company should be focused on is product market fit. Um, you know, you need, you need to get it out and have, you know, 12 customers say, you know, this is fantastic. I love this. And you want to hear words like that, right? You want to then see if you can replicate that, get another 12 customers, right? Can you then, you know, push that a little bit further and, and, and maybe only then say, okay, do we have something that is scalable? Like, could we put money in the top and either further build out our product roadmap or further build out our sales and marketing organization? The only time that you really should be looking at, 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 at a capital infusion is if you can accelerate the business. Uh, and, and I think a lot of companies look at it the other way around where they say, let's, let's get some funding in here so that we can build the product, so that we can build out the market uh, use case, uh, and then we'll sort of go for another round and then we'll scale it. Um, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, respect um, that, that you learn or you, you gain if you bootstrap and, and really have to fight for that first customer and the first you know, dozen customers and the first two dozen customers. So I'm a huge fan of, of bootstrapping at first, uh, proving it out, uh, and then only. And most companies actually, I would argue, should actually never go for, for capital. Um, you know, probably only a few companies really, really should be looking at, at giving up that valuable equity. Okay, so the other the, the the lesson that you kind of shared in in terms of the mediocrity can be dangerous and kind of not totally being honest with yourself that you know is your product actually uh, getting somewhere? Are you actually onto something, or do, do you need to make a change? And I think that maybe in hindsight, that's easier to do but if somebody's kind of in that stage right now where maybe they have a product in market they have some customers maybe they're not getting um the the, the rapid growth that they would like to see what what are some of the signs that you what is the advice you could give them Exactly. What are those telltale signs? Uh, I actually just wrote a blog post about this, uh, so it's, it's, it's top of mind. And, and we went through it as well. And, and when I talk to other entrepreneurs around here, um, you know, I often hear one of two stories. I hear entrepreneurs saying, how do we generate leads? Uh, how do we generate demand? Um, 
you know, do you have uh, a direct sales force and should we be investing in the partner channel? So I hear questions like that and it feels to me like you're still pushing the string. Like you don't have product market fit yet. You don't have the demand yet. So if you're, if you're asking questions about how do we grow marketing, how do we grow leads, how do we grow sales, um, those may be red flags. Um, once in a blue moon, and, and unfortunately there's, there's fewer of these companies, I will meet with a founder who says, how do we scale? How do we build our DevOps? How do we build our QA? Um, you know, we don't have enough support people. Those are very, very different questions. And in that case, the business is feeling a pull from the string. The product is fitting a use case and it's really valuable and it is moving and it's a totally, totally different feeling than a product that doesn't have product market fit. So if you're in one of those situations, it will feel very, very different. If you're in the first situation, it's where you're trying to figure out how to market and how to generate more leads and sales. You may want to ask yourself the question if the product is really um, something that customers are valuing. Yeah. And, and also, how about is, is um, the amount of effort you need to put into selling your product yeah. a yeah, factor absolutely. as well? You know, if, if, you're, if you're chatting with prospects, you know, is it, a, is it a long sales cycle? Is it a difficult sales cycle? Now, some products are more difficult to sell than others. Uh, you know, they're more of a technical sales, so that, that can give you a false positive. But you're right. Those kind of things um, are, are often telltale signs as well. On the flip side, you know, the customers that you have, you know, do you have high churn? Uh, do you have customers that are, you know, have low engagement. Uh, so all of those questions as well will point to, you know, is your product market fit? So I really see the, the, the growth stages as, as three things. You know, first, the company, any company needs to really focus on product. You know, do, do they have value and product market fit, right? Only then they should sort of add on the second stage, which is all about growth. What can we do to grow and accelerate this as quickly as possible? And once they've got that, then they should be thinking about efficiency metrics. What can we do to not only have product market fit and grow this, but also be efficient with our with our metrics? So going back to 2001, when you guys launched this business, how long did you run it as a B2C play before you you sort of pivoted to a B2B business? Well, it was it was three years. It was three years before we uh, had Lufthansa as our first paying. Um, B2B client. And, you know, in, in the early days, we were building websites for people. We were doing odd jobs to sort of keep the money coming in. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think those are good, humbling experiences that, uh, that entrepreneurs need to and, and probably should uh, be doing. So three years, it took you three years to get your first paying customer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in the meantime, we had, we, we, we had close to the 250 or 300,000 users that were using this B2C product. So again, we were stuck in this sort of false positive market. We had sort of this, this side of the market that was working, side of the business that was working, but it wasn't generating any revenue. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard. You get all these different mixed messages. And, and I guess one of the dangers is that you can start to look at that and say, great, we've got you know, a few hundred thousand users, they're not paying us anything. Let's kind of focus on 
how we can monetize that. Um, maybe we can grow that to, you know, 500,000 users and sort of then we'll figure out how to make money from it. Um, but there's a danger with that, right? Because you can kind of you can kind of fool yourself into thinking that um, you know, and, and and every company will take a, a lot of different paths to sort of figure things out, um, you know. And and we were we were we were still passionate and excited about this, but it wasn't until this customer came to us and, and opened our eyes to a different business model that that we really said, hey, this is something that we can still be passionate about uh, and, and grow the company. So how did you go about getting uh, a company like Lufthansa as a customer? Well, that, that, came with, that came with the volume, right? So we had a lot of customers uh, or users on the, the consumer uh, product. Um, you know, fast forward to today, um, you know, today I'm a huge fan of, of content marketing or SEO. Uh, and it's something that I actually think that we've done very, very well. Um, you know, we, we put a lot of energy, uh, the way we structure our marketing department, we put a lot of energy into, into writing relevant, valuable content. Uh, so, and, and again, th- that kind of content really drives the best type of, of, uh, of uh, leads as well. So I think, I think, yes, you can have, you can have this, this user base that will, buy, you know, through a viral manner sort of have customers come back to your site. But in many cases, you know, for customers or for businesses that are, that are starting to, to, to generate leads and really need, need to look at demand generation, um, I would say one of the most efficient and probably the highest quality things to do is to really look at what kind of content, what kind of questions are your customers asking, and can you put valuable content around that that will drive leads and awareness back to your website. Uh, so, I mean, that's what we do today. Uh, we really spend most of our effort on that. Uh, we, we spend, you know, quite a bit of money on AdWords as well, of course. Uh, we have... Um, also invested in Facebook, but you know we found that Facebook is is uh, too high up in the uh, in the funnel. So there's there's not enough intent uh, because again it's not a it's not a search driven or an intent uh, rich uh, rich channel. So I mean you've got to try all these things. You know some things will work for some companies and not for others. Uh, one one sort of lesson that I have found is that it it takes it takes a lot of effort and and testing. To get advertising spend right, um, you can waste a tremendous amount of dollars uh, if you don't accurately monitor the leads and the quality of leads that come in through some of the paid advertising channels. Um, like Facebook's, Facebook gave us a tremendous amount of volume, but the quality of the conversions and then the retention of that cohort was very low. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to continue investing in that, for example. So. Test yeah. everything. Test every single cohort, but consistently, we found that content marketing and, and uh, SEO uh, effort was content marketing the way you acquired that first customer, the Lufthansa. No, um, that first customer was acquired because uh, they had um, a couple of a hundred Lufthansa employees that were using our consumer dashboard to monitor their soccer scores. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> You know, and and they were like, okay, enough is enough. Uh, you know, let's see if we can push some business data through this channel as opposed to the soccer scores, right? And you know, the Germans are uh, pretty passionate about their soccer scores, so uh, so there you go. That's how that happened. <laughs> and so, what 
were what were you guys doing in those early days to get customers? So you get Lufthansa, um, you know, you got a big, big kind of corporate customer. It kind of validates the the shift or the pivot that you decided to make. And so what did you do next to then say, okay, how do we get the next customer or the one after that? Right. So, so this, is, this is still before we launched our cloud-based application and we pivoted the business model to more of an SMB model. Um, so we're selling, we're selling enterprise-grade software. We're selling into, you know, we sold into Intel and American Express and, you know, H&R Block and Staples. Um, so this was, this was very much direct selling. Um, now we we really still had a, a large a large content focus and, and SEO has always been something that has been um, very close to close to everything that we do, but for the most part I remember um, you know I would I would prospect and I would cold call uh, and and Omer I can tell you I hated it I mean it felt <laughs> so inefficient um, you know no matter how well I targeted uh, a person. Um, you know, there was just there was just a real, real difficult um, struggle to get them to, to to spend any time with me and, and and listen to the story. So I remember that was very very difficult. And and throughout that entire period, we we continued to spend more time on growing our inbound um, uh, processes. So really, you know, with content and with demand generation through SEO. Uh, that started making that much easier. So I had to do less outbound cold calling. And what I was doing is I was then re- replying to um, warm leads that were coming through uh, through our inbound process. And that's it's night and day. I mean, anybody that's tried that, um, you know, firsthand, uh, it, it truly is night and day. And it felt much more efficient because here's somebody who has is, is raised their hand and they said, hey, I'm interested in what you're what you're selling. I would like to speak to somebody. Um, and again, back in those days, this is sort of, you know, 2007, 2008, um, you know, the product wasn't as self-serve as, as the one that is that we have today. So we had to talk to them. We had to onboard them. We had to have a technical discussion with IT. Um, and it still was a relatively long sales cycle. Um, so, you know, that, that direct approach was necessary. But moving from a cold call to a warm prospect who had raised their hand uh, was a huge shift and, and a very valuable shift as far as the efficiency of, of that process went. And also my, my mental health. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, really, it's, it's really hard uh, to sort of pick up the phone every day and, and, and reach out to folks that fundamentally probably don't want to talk to you. How, how long did you have to do that for before you were able to rely more on inbound marketing? Uh, we, we, that happened relatively quickly. Uh, I mean, I was, I was super motivated because, you know, this was simply not working. Uh, it was not working from, from you know, sort of my happiness point of view and, 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 and it simply wasn't working from a volume point of view. So we started investing very early on in, in, in blog posts and in content. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, the, these 300,000 consumer users, um, actually helped us quite a bit uh, as far as our, our presence and our backlinks and our, our buzz. Um, so when we started writing content and, and really, you know, employing SEO tactics, uh, it actually happened pretty quickly. And keep in mind, back back then, there was, there was not a lot of 
sophistication in the in the search engine optimization world, uh, and we were actually make, able to make some huge strides um, very very quickly. So luckily for me, I didn't have to do more than maybe a year or so of, of cold calling, and before we had warm prospects coming in. A year of cold calling for you and I, probably a day of cold calling feels like a year. Oh, it's, right? it's horrendous! <laughs> it is horrendous. All right, you you also when we were talking earlier. You also mentioned that when it came to your first 1,000 customers, you had been pretty involved with just about all of them. Yeah, yeah. So how, how did that happen? Was that because you were, you were having to onboard these people? What was, what was the level of involvement you had? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's uh, switch gears for a sec because um, – the first thousand. When I talk about the first thousand, so in 2012, um, we launched um, the current product, which is our, our cloud-based dashboard that is targeting small and mid-sized businesses. Um, and it wasn't being sold for fifty thousand dollars; it was being sold for twenty-five dollars a month uh, per user. So very, very different business model. Super risky move on our part. Um, but the reason, the fundamental reason, and, and, and we had lots and lots of inbound volume, the reason I wanted to talk to all of these customers, and I was motivated to talk to all of these customers, because it was a brand new product. It was, it was immature. We were trying to understand the market, and I really wanted to talk to as many customers as I possibly could. Um, and and there's, there's, there's a huge advantage to that. So... Um, a lot of founders uh, will shy away from the idea of, of, of talking with customers and, and either they'll say, well, we're going to build something that is totally self-serve and it's going to be through the website only, uh, or they'll say, listen, I don't really like sales uh, and I'm going to hand this over to some uh, sales rep that I, that I bring in or that I hire. Um, there's a huge advantage, especially for the founder or the CEO to talk to those early customers. A you will find that your customer retention rate is through the roof because the customers have got a personal relationship with, with, with the, the CEO or the founder. Uh, and, and, and fundamentally, I'm asking about the health and the interest and the value of the product. So, you know, it really is like we're, we're using, we're involving these early customers in every single decision. Uh, and there's huge value in that. So I really, I really tried to, you know, talk to, onboard, help, learn from, you know, each one of those first uh, thousand customers. Um, you know, and, and, then, it, and then, then the volume starts becoming too difficult, and, and I still try to reach out and, um, you know, get involved as much as I can, and, and especially if a customer today, if a customer says, uh, hey, we've got an issue, you know, I might jump in and, and see if I can help out, or likewise, um, which is really nice, if a customer, you know, writes in and says, hey, uh, we had a great experience, you know, working with your support team. Um, you know, I'll reach out to that customer again and I'll say, hey, listen, thanks so much for the note. It really makes a big difference. Um, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Right. So those those touch points, I think, are so incredibly valuable. And especially in the early days when when you're really trying to figure out the product market fit. Yeah, totally. So how, how big is the company now? How many employees do you have? So we have about 90 employees today, um, you know, and when we launched the cloud uh, app, which was in 2012, um, I think we probably had about uh, uh, 14 employees. If you chart that, uh, it was basically, you know, there was a, 
you know, just with the founders, you know, and then we sort of had very, very slow growth for a very, very long time, like 10 years. And then all of a sudden we've had this hockey stick, uh, you know, over the past five years. So in the first 10 years, you were probably hiring about an employee a year on average. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or maybe not even that. I mean, you know, there's ups and downs and uh, sometimes it was even worse than you could possibly imagine. But, you know, like it was it was slow growth uh, in the first 10 years. Uh, I mean, I, I have zero regrets. I don't know what else I'd be doing. Um, you know, it, it's it's always been um, something that gets me up in the morning. But but it's, it's very different than it was uh, then today. I don't know if you talk about revenue publicly, but if you don't, can you give us kind of a broad sense of how big the business is today? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we've got 8,500 customers and we're closing in on uh, doing sort of a 8 million uh, ARR kind of number. Wow, that's that's awesome. And and to think, you know, for, for a business that took three years to get the first paying customer, it's it's a, it's a truly inspirational story. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a huge optimist, right? And uh, so we were, ta- we were talking about quotes before. Um, you know, is there a favorite quote of mine? And I, I don't know that there is, but, um, and I don't know who told this me, to me first. It was either my, my, uh, my chief uh, customer success guy or my CFO. Uh, and they said, listen, Alan, um, nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. And, you know, you, you take that to heart because I think a lot of entrepreneurs live on the roller coaster uh, every day. Uh, and there really are extreme highs and, and extreme lows. Um, you know, and I think you really have to say, okay, you know what, you're right. The sun will always come up tomorrow. Nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. And both things are true. But sort of that even keel is something that, uh, that I think that perspective can help a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah, that, that's, that's great advice. Okay, let's uh, move on to the lightning round. I'm going to ask you seven questions and just try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Hire the best people. And we live by that, and it is uh, hands down the most important thing that you can do. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? So there's a couple of books. I'm going to say Good to Great has been one that I've always uh, found fantastic. Hard Things uh, uh, is, is it's, a, it's a raw, rough read, and I'm not sure if I like his, his tactics, but it's still a really good lesson. Uh, and the one that I just finished reading was uh, an amazing book called Lead by Greatness by David Lappin. Awesome. I will include all those in the show notes. Uh, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Well, we talked about it a little bit, but I think uh, a combination of this optimism and, and brutal honesty uh, is, is super important. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Um, if, if it's a productivity tool, I'd probably have to say, you know, doing lots of reading, um, you know, or, or chatting with, I love chatting with other founders. I find it so motivational. Um, so, yeah, reading and, and getting information from other founders. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? You know, I, I struggled with that one, but it would probably some, be something, you know, energy or uh, eco-related. I think there's just so much opportunity and, and so much to be done in that space. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty open book. Uh, most people know me quite well. Uh, sometimes people are, are surprised to find out that I'm not a, a software uh, or a business uh, person, um, you know, had gone to school. I actually did industrial design. I wanted to be an architect uh, or an industrial designer when I uh, was in school. So, you know, I think there's, there's all sorts of different backgrounds that can serendipitously, uh, you know, lead to, lead to different things. And finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? I do a lot of cycling. Uh, I cycle every single day to work uh, and back. And to me, it is such a mental health hack. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And I've gotten a lot of the office to be into cycling or running as well. So I'm a huge fan of having that balance. How far do you cycle? Uh, I cycle about, uh, I mean, for you guys in the States, I don't know how long this is, but it's about 16 kilometers um, one way, so about you know, 30, 32 kilometers a day. That must be about at least 20 miles. Wow. I don't know what that is, but yeah, it, it's, it's good. It's, it's perfect. I get tired driving my car that far. <laughs> <laughs> See, you should be cycling or walking. Yeah. Alan, thanks. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Now, if uh, folks want to check out Clipfolio, you can go to Clipfolio, that's clip with a K, folio.com. Um, and I'll include a link in the show notes for that as well. And if, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you know what? I'd be happy for them to ping me on LinkedIn. You can look me up. I think that's probably one of the best ways. You can DM me on Twitter as well. Uh, but LinkedIn is probably the best thing to do. Okay. And, and in the notes, always say, hey, I heard you on the podcast. Like notes with uh, LinkedIn requests with no notes, I tend to ignore. Good tip there. Yeah, I, I tend to do the same as well these days. All right. Awesome. Uh, Alan, thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I wish you and the team at Clipfolio all the best in the future. Absolutely. My pleasure, Omar. Cheers.